Good afternoon, everyone. On behalf of the AAR Religion Journalism's Awards Jury, I'm delighted to be presenting these awards that recognize the best in-depth news writing on religion in 2018. The jury included Javed Kalim, National Race and Justice Correspondent for the Los Angeles Times, Liz Kinenki, producer of CBS Culture and Religion News, and myself as chair. There were 39 submissions this year, all distinguished in some way and meriting our close attention. Collectively, these articles address the diversity of religious and human experiences and highlighted how religion undergirded some of the most prominent newsworthy events of 2018. After considerable deliberation, the jurors reached a consensus regarding the outstanding quality of the articles submitted by three particular applicants whose work we are about to recognize today. Our first prize winner is freelance writer Ian Johnson. Johnson submitted articles that address the troubled intersection between religion, politics, and society in contemporary China. These articles included hashtag MeToo in the monastery, 10 million Catholics in China face storm they can't control, and the Uyghurs and China's long history of trouble with Islam. We found this collection of news stories to represent a deep dive series of articles with an excellent mix of journalism and public scholarship. They provide new and relevant information in the context of today's political and religious debates based on careful research that would otherwise not be accessible to a broad public. Our second prize winner is Dawn Araujo Hawkins, who is a staff writer for Global Sisters Report. Araujo Hawkins covered stories that are often not found in the usual news outlets. For example, she wrote about black spirituality among the Oblate Sisters of Providence, the plight of refugees in contemporary America, and anti-racism efforts in Ferguson galvanized by the death of Michael Brown. These noteworthy news stories highlight for us how people in adverse circumstances can often discover the best in themselves and in others by summoning their highest religious ideals. Our third prize winner is Joshua McElwee, Vatican correspondent for National Catholic Reporter. The news stories submitted by McElwee constituted strong reporting on what is considered one of the biggest religion stories of 2018 by someone who understands the Catholic Church well. Three of his articles focus on the sex abuse crisis within the Catholic Church and provided a wealth of information about a range of responses to this crisis within the Vatican. We found his writing to be compelling and highly informative. Unfortunately, our first and second prize winners cannot join us today, but we are fortunate to have Joshua McElwee present and now ask him to step up and receive his award. Um, I'm now going to be um, handing things over to Evan Berry, who will be presiding over the rest of this session.
Good afternoon. Uh, my name is Evan Berry. Uh, I'm from uh, Arizona State University uh, School of History, Philosophy, and Religious Studies. Um, I also serve on the American Academy of Religions uh, Committee for the Public Understanding of, of Religion, which is the body uh, representing the membership that uh, is responsible for uh, coordinating this award. Um, and I wanted to say thank you to Asma for her work uh, and, uh, and the other jurors this year. Um, I was able to be on that jury last year, and it's a real pleasure to see the, the dearth of great uh, religion reporting that's, that's going on in conversation with many of our members and bringing issues that we all care about uh, to public consciousness. I wanted to um, expand on Asma's introduction of, uh, of Joshua and also to, uh, to tell you a little bit more about our other contributors, uh, and then we'll hear uh, from each of them about sort of the state of religion reporting today uh, and going forward. So Liz Konecki is a broadcast journalist specializing in reporting on religion and spirituality. She wrote uh, 45 half-hour shows about religion in America for CBS Religion and Culture series. During her tenure, she has looked at faith and religion as they relate to racism, white supremacy, climate change, immigration, cultural heritage, among other timely issues. She is a recipient of the Henry Luce Foundation's Public Theologies uh, of Technology of Presence grant, uh, seven Religion Communication Council Wilbur Awards, three Religion News Association Awards, uh, and she is an active member of uh, the RNA and recently rejoined the Directors Guild of America. Uh, Javed Kalim is the National Race and Justice Correspondent for the Los Angeles Times, where he writes about how race and ethnicity shape the evolving understanding of what it means to be an American. He frequently reports on, other, uh, on policing, civil rights, immigration, prisons and religion, among other issues. Before joining the Times, uh, Kalim wrote for Huffington Post and the Miami Herald. His reporting has been recognized for the Society of Professional Journalists, the American Academy of Religion, uh, and Re the Religion News Association. He served on the board of Religious News Foundation and the Religious News Association. Uh, Shirley Abraham is a founding director of the Pulitzer Center on Crisis Reporting, or I'm sorry, uh, Shirley Abraham is a Cannes Prize winning Indian documentary filmmaker uh, whose work is supported by the Sundance Institute, the Pulitzer Center, the New York Times, the MacArthur Foundation, the IDFA, Bertha Fund, and many other organizations. She has been a fellow of Sundance Labs, the Cluster of Excellence Heidelberg, the India Foundation for the Arts, and the Goethe Institute. John Sawyer is the founding director of the Pulitzer Center on Crisis Reporting, an innovative nonprofit journalism and education organization dedicated to supporting in-depth engagement with underreported global affairs. The Pulitzer Center has supported dozens of projects on religion and public policy, among, uh, among them major features for the New York Times Magazine, PBS NewsHour, The New Yorker, and The Guardian. Uh, I would like you to add, uh, join me in giving a hand to welcome our panelists. Um, so I have circulated among our, our conversants today a handful of questions to seed our discussion, and I'd like to just open it up. We'll go to each in the order of introduction and just get their thoughts about the state of uh, religion reporting, uh, and then we'll, we'll build on the conversation from there. So, Can you hear me? Is this on? Um, so um, I'm actually uh, wildly optimistic about... Okay, I'll just do this, right? I should know this, I work in television. <laughs> um, I actually have a lot of, of hope right now um, when it comes to reporting on religion in general. Um, 
I do feel like, especially in um, the realm that I work in primarily, which is broadcast, and the way that people are actually getting their, these stories is changing. So the platform in which people are, are receiving the information is changing slightly, but that doesn't mean that there isn't a need for really good storytelling and good storytelling around religion. So I'm actually quite optimistic about along those lines. Um, and what I see and the way I feel like the work that I've done has, um, has been its most vibrant is when I'm able to collaborate with religious scholars in particular. Um, and that falls along the lines of anything from, you know, calling up a religion scholar and talking to them about um, what's going on, on with the Uyghurs in China, you know, the information that's coming out, which is why we actually thought Ian Johnson's work was so significant. What's actually going on there in a place that it's very hard to get good, accurate information out of, out of that country. Um, I also really uh, like the, the piece that um, Nick Schifrin did for the NewsHour, which was a Pulitzer collaboration. Um, that, so for me, when I'm thinking about a story, I often will call a religion scholar just to get a sense of, of what's going on. And um, I'm actually wildly optimistic. I feel like people are want, want these stories. They want us to help them make sense of what they're seeing and hearing, especially when it comes to religious minorities in general in our population here in the US. And um, I think that you, anyone at this table is primed to do that. Uh, yeah, I think I'll just stop there for now. Is that good? Uh, thanks. It's great to be here among such good company in the audience and the panel. Um, I, I'm also optimistic uh, about uh, religion reporting and, and kind of its uh, importance, influence, and uh, the collaboration between scholars and journalists, um, who we, we both uh, sort of do the same work, uh, but in... Um, different ways, especially at different lengths of uh, writing. <laughs> um, uh, but, you know, what our, our jobs are to, to um, either research through, through archives or through people and places, uh, different traditions and how they relate to history or the current time or both, and then, then translate that um, to a way that our audience can understand and gain from, be it an audience of our peers or a mass audience or somewhere in the middle. Um, so I, I, I think both are scholarship and religion reporting are, are so important and they need to work together because when they work separately, um, it's just less information and understanding out there. Uh, I'll give you an example of an article that I, I recently wrote. I, I don't cover religion anymore, but I did for about um, eight years between the Miami Herald and Huffington Post. Uh, and now I cover um, all kinds of news, but I am often called upon to write about religion when my editor sees a story that we need to cover and there's a religion aspect to it. Um, uh, about a month ago, uh, or maybe less than a month ago, there was a, um, three cars of um, uh, dual U.S. Mexican citizens uh, south of the border in Mexico who are traveling to a family event and they uh, were, were killed. Um, and this made big news because they were US citizens and in the headlines it said, Mormon family killed. Um, and you know, to people who don't know a lot of the history of Mormonism uh, or the LDS church, 
which this family was not a part of. Um, you know, whenever you mention the word Mormon, people, uh, there's a lot of sensationalism around it. Um, people ask questions about polygamy. They ask questions about why, why are they uh, in, in Mexico? Um, what's, how'd they get there? I thought this was an American faith, um, and so on and so forth. Uh, and so my job was to answer all these questions of 100 plus years of history um, in, you know, a thousand words within three hours. Uh, and you could go to Wikipedia or just Google uh, Mormons in Mexico and you might get some information, but, you know, that's not the best way to find out what's actually uh, accurate. Um, you find a lot of wrong information. Uh, so uh, I went to scholars. Um, I went to uh, uh, two in particular who I either talked to or followed. One is Barbara Jones Brown, and she's an academic uh, based in Salt Lake City, and she is a, the director of the Mormon Studies Association, or Mormon History Association, one of, forgot the name exactly. And I also follow the work of uh, Christina Rossetti, who is a scholar of Mormon fundamentalism, uh, and a PhD, uh, who uh, is here at this conference somewhere, so I hope to meet her eventually. Um, but I looked up her work um, to learn about the history of, you know, um, anti-Mormon prosecution and persecution in the U.S., um, the history of polygamy and, and, and uh, why the church uh, and its members fled and fled and fled and, and, and were encouraged for some of them to go to Mexico, um, the history of uh, the fact that Mormonism is just as diverse as any other religion, and people have interfaith relationships. They're, they speak Spanish, they speak English, they um, are very integrated, they're not integrated, all these things. Um, and, and that's the kind of understanding I was hoping to bring to my readers. And then also add, you know, this is a story about a, a, a death uh, of people who were likely very innocent, and it's not necessarily about their religion, but I can tell you a little bit about that background since you're asking that question as LA Times readers. Um, so that's one example of how those two areas of research go together. I'll say the biggest challenge uh, we journalists face, and you, I'm sure you've heard this if you've heard us talk anywhere as a religion reporter before, is that we don't have a lot of us who are um, tasked to be experts in this area, and there's less and less of us. Example A, um, my newspaper, it, there's those of us who do it time to time, but there's no one person who always does it. So we need more people. I, I'm not sure if we'll always get them, but, uh, but there's a hope there. Hi. I thought I would uh, use this time to, um, to sort of establish the particular context in which I live and work in India and uh, to, uh, to somewhere go on to express how difficult it is um, to look at storytelling around all matters of religion. Uh, so we are a country that is primarily Hindu. 80% uh, of our population is Hindu. 15% of us are Muslim. And uh, the rest, 5%, is, let's say, an assortment of Christians and Sikhs and Buddhists and Parsis and the rest of the minorities. Uh, at the moment, we have um, a prime minister and a party in power that is, um, that is decidedly Hindu nationalist. And uh, even the ideological parent of the ruling party is, um, is an organization that, uh, that's a paramilitary Hindu organization. I mean, uh, they are the ideological um, 
parents of this organization believed that you know, there was somebody who drew inspiration from Italian and German fascists. And uh, there were people who solemnly believed that that India as a country should be a dedicatedly Hindu nation, one country, one voice, one body, one polity. Uh, except that now that they are in power, and uh, we still remain as diverse as we've always been. I mean, India as a country has about some 780 languages. Um, way more nationalities and sub-nationalities that you can ever imagine. Uh, we are as diverse as Europe, and it's believed that uh, Africa is the only place in the world that is more diverse than a country like India. But now what we have in power is a state and also a shadow state that believes that um, anyone who is not a Hindu is, uh, is a traitor to the national cause or, uh, or is worthy of elimination by fair means or foul. Uh, and what happens when you have these structures of power is that uh, the media landscape is completely dominated by people who either believe in this sort of a vision of the country. Uh, statistically, we know that uh, about 89% of uh, all the important positions across all media in India is owned or controlled by upper caste Hindus, which is not to say that they're all bigots. It is just to establish that this is the kind of structure that you come up against when you're trying to report on violence against minorities in the country. Um, increasingly, we've noticed that, uh, that there is an absolute whitewashing of the violence that is perpetrated in the name of religion, uh, unofficially, officially by the media, uh, by a lot of other organizations who subscribe again to this very militaristic idea of India that is now um, taking root uh, mostly because of the kind of party we have in power. Um, and I just wanted to uh, express this to say that uh, that the idea of India as it stands now is um, is a pretty xenophobic, violent idea which excludes even the existence of minorities. I mean, there is uh, it's almost it's almost a way of cleansing cleansing them out of the country, a country that is uh, that prides itself in being diverse and secular and uh, a constitutionally secular country. I mean, we are, we are mandated to respect all religions equally. Um, however, this is where we are now. We've, we are now seeing the rise of an ultra-nationalism um, sort of a polity at the center. And uh, what has happened recently is that it has, it has become legitimate to commit violence on minorities. And now we find expression of it in, in this very ritualized, performative sort of murder that is performed in daylight by way of lynching people. Um, it is very easy to, it is very easy to tell a minority, uh, somebody belong to the minority that you've offended religious sentiments and therefore uh, you can be killed. Therefore the law is not going to come and save you. Uh, so we've had a spate of mob lynchings, which is this um, this primordial form of murder that is now introduced in in a modern country, or as we believe ourselves to be a modern developing country. Uh, this was the kind of landscape that I found myself in when I was uh, looking at what is it that we need to speak about as independent voices, um, and uh, I thought I would just uh, express this landscape as we find ourselves in today and then maybe we'll 
go on to speak about how is it that you still hold on to the independence of your voice. John, would you like to join in and then Joshua? So quickly before you speak, Joshua, I was gonna invite you in addition to telling us a little bit about yourself, I hope you'll give a bit of a deeper dive on your award-winning stories as well. Yeah, so I'm Joshua McElwee. I work for the National Catholic Reporter newspaper. So I think I'm coming from a bit of a different context than uh, other people on the panel, perhaps. I'm a religion journalist, uh, but I'm primarily a Catholic journalist. So I live in Rome. I primarily cover the Vatican and basically covering the Catholic Church from the Central Command. Um, so I'm not sure. I guess I'll talk first about my my experience uh, in terms of Catholic journalism, uh, in terms of the question of how I feel about the state of religious journalism today, I think in, in Catholic journalism, we're at a very difficult point. Um, so I work for an outlet that is independent. We were founded in 1964 uh, to be completely free of the church structures. So we consider ourselves journalists first. Most of us are also Catholics. Uh, that's very helpful in terms of knowing what we write about, knowing the story, knowing what's important. Um, but we consider it very important to be separate from church structures. Um, that way we can write about things that the church might not want us to write about or to uncover stories the church might not want to be uncovered. In our history, that has been primarily about uncovering clergy sexual abuse. So we were the first national outlet starting in 1985 to cover that issue. Um, long before it was something that was looked at in the public sphere and Looking back at our archives, we were really lambasted for it. People thought we were making uh, a huge issue out of something very small, um, which obviously we now know really wasn't the case. Uh, but we're rare. Um, there's essentially two journals, two newspapers like that, ourselves and a, a, a newspaper in France. Most other Catholic outlets are connected to the church in some fashion, um, and that's good and bad. But what we're, what we're seeing a lot of is influence of money, um, and those who have money have power. So in the United States, that's basically uh, the big Catholic outlet is EWTN. Um, my newspaper has done a, a, a number of articles on what they're covering, what they're focusing on, where they're getting their money from. It's quite conservative, quite right-wing. Uh, we call them an empire because they control a huge television network here in the U.S., a wire service in the US, and then wire services in different languages around the world. Um, so my outlet, which is lay run, independent, you know, we're working with limited resources, trying to devote as much as we can to the story, I think in ways that other outlets are having difficulty as well. Um, in terms of my own coverage over the past few years, uh, for us, Pope Francis has been a real big story for the past six years. He's someone who's trying to bring a new image, a new face to the church, obviously a new energy, uh, turning away a bit from the European church, looking at the South American church, the African church, the Asian church, and really looking for a church of dialogue, encounter. He talks about building this culture of encounter and of being open to all people, all things, all ideas. Uh, we saw some of that in October. He called a big meeting um, of the bishops from the Amazon region he decided uh, about 18 months ago, two years ago, that this was gonna be an, an important thing for the church to do, the Catholic Church, to look at what's going on in the Amazon, both in terms of environmental destruction and in terms of a church that is small, but 
but active and what kind of ministries could develop. And so some of that was looking at possible changes. One thing that was discussed at this synod, which we covered for four weeks, was the idea of maybe priests don't have to be celibate in all situations. Maybe there could be a situation in which, on a regional basis, priests could marry um, just to make sure that there's ministry available to people. Uh, other reforms, you know, trying to make the Vatican a more transparent, financially open place where you can see what's going on, where money is coming from. Uh, but of course, the sexual abuse crisis continues. In the United States, there's revelation after revelation about a bishop who has covered up for a, a priest or who has not reported the priest. Uh, the bishops here passed major changes in 2002. There's lots of questions about whether those are still being followed. Um, and in the past year, there's been a number of stories, the biggest of which probably was the revelation that the former Archbishop of Washington was a sexual predator of minors and, and seminarians, and we're waiting on the Vatican to release a report essentially on how was he allowed to have this much power? Why didn't someone stop him? Why didn't they see what was wrong um, for the period decades ago under the previous popes? So I think that's a few things to think about. Thank you, thank you, Joshua. I'm John Sawyer with the Pulitzer Center, and, and it's wonderful to be here with all of you today. And, and I think in terms of the general question, the quality, the state of religion reporting today, at one level, um, absolutely, it's very strong, as you see in the examples of the work that Joshua's doing, that Shirley has done. Uh, I wanna say especially a, a word or two about Ian Johnson, because it's been a great, privilege of us at the Pulitzer Center to work with Ian over the last five or six years supporting his work in China. And uh, he is one of the best examples I know of, of all of the journalists that we work with, of the value of sort of sustained, in-depth uh, reporting uh, on an issue and just making yourself, just as you heard with Joshua now, the, the expert on a subject. And, and if you go back and you read uh, the the interviews and the essays he's written for the New York Review of Books and the New York Times, New York Magazine, New Yorker, New York New York Times Magazine, and so on, you'll get as good a picture as you could find anywhere of what is really happening in China today, and particularly in the in in the space of sort of intellectual um, activity, uh, spiritual activity. Uh, it's it's remarkable reporting on on the state of religion journalism in general, I, I think I, I wouldn't say that I'm wildly optimistic, I wouldn't go as far as Liz, uh, I'd say that maybe I would say I'm doggedly optimistic, that, that I, I think that, and it's, it's, it's interesting to speak just after Joshua and, and, and his description of, the, of the, what's happened with the church, uh, we really face a crisis, we face a crisis in journalism that those of us on the stage are quite familiar with, the, the, the collapse of the old model and the, the lack of, uh, the shortage of resources, uh, the, the inability to do as much with as many people as we used to, as we did for many, many years. But we really face a much deeper crisis in America and it's, it's, a, it's a loss of trust in the media itself, in, in, in the church, uh, in academia, academia in, in government, uh, it's business, it's pretty much across the board. Uh, and we have to, as a society, in my view, 
uh, think really hard and set about a, uh, a, an initiative of repair uh, to try to rebuild the, the engagement uh, going down to the, the, the community level. Uh, and and that's, that's very much a part of what we're trying to do at the Pulitzer Center. It's why education and outreach is of equal importance to us as is the, the provision of dollars to support uh, strong journalism because we, it's, uh, the great journalism is, a, is a, a point of departure, but if we don't find means to get those journalists and the issues they cover out into classrooms and church groups and community groups uh, and explain and educate people on the importance of, of real facts on, on big issues and why they matter to each and every one of us, uh, we're going to be in deep, deep trouble in, 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 in our country and, and across the world. Um, and I wanna, I'll come back to that more, but I think that what, you know, what Charlie was just talking about, the, the, the tensions that are playing out in, in India today, I think we're, we're seeing those. We see it in the reporting that, that we're supporting all across the, the world. It's not just India, it's every, there's many, many other places as well. Thank you each. Um, I'd like to take an opportunity to try to get the conversation uh, to zero in on a few of the, the features that I, that I hear in your comments and that are, that are motivating this award. So uh, this award is distributed by the Committee for the Public Understanding of Religion, uh, which it's been doing for many years. Um, as we have former awardees on stage with us, and you can see on our website uh, a list running back uh, a couple of decades. Um, more recently, however, the American Academy of Religion has amended its mission statement to make the public understanding of religion a central part of what the organization does. Um, and it's my view, and I think the view of a lot of people, that uh, reporting and journalism has a really uh, critical role to play in advancing that aim, um, which is why we recognize your work and want to celebrate it and lift it up. Um, but I'd like to, to think a little bit about what that means. So there are a variety of conversations uh, happening uh, across this conference today, the one that was in this room previously, for example, about who the publics are, um, what this concept religion is, uh, and how we think and talk and educate uh, about it. Um, and so maybe we can try to drill down a little bit on that. Uh, who is your work for? What role do you see journalism play in advancing the public understanding of religion? Uh, do you see it that way? And, and if not, why? And we're also, we don't need to sort of go in any particular order. Those of you who would like to jump in, feel free. one of the things that we routinely come up against in India is, uh, is the lack of recognition of how the structures of narratives, public narratives are created. When we talk about something like advancing the public understanding of religion, I think uh, one of uh, the most important things we as, uh, say, journalists or filmmakers or storytellers in the independent space need to do is, is to recognize where these, where and how these narratives about religion and minorities have been created. For example, uh, in India, there is, uh, there is a lot of myth that is created around who a Muslim is. And the nature of that myth is fairly toxic. Uh, you know, there, is, uh, there are phrases in Hindi that 
that loosely translate into we marry five and they bear 25, which essentially refers to polygamy as practiced as as it is believed to be practiced by Muslim men, and uh, and the belief that Muslim have Muslim families have a lot of children, and this is essentially used to advance the threat that Muslims are perceived to be to the idea of the Indian nation. It is said that they are going to continue to pro procreate and take over the Hindu population, and this uh, it's poisonous. This kind of narrative. And uh, I was recently reading some reportage, and uh, very rarely do we come up with this kind of fact-based or data-driven journalism that dedicates itself to countering this kind of toxic myth. And uh, what I read was that if you look at the data that is thrown up by uh, the statistics that the government collects, then, uh, then polygamy as practiced across religion uh, is al it's almost the same percentage for uh, married Muslim men and married Hindu men. Uh, it also, in fact, threw up uh, information that if you look at the number of Hindu women and the number of Muslim women who actually bear more than five children, the number of Hindu women is greater. And it's sort of, it's not like this will completely destabilize the myths and the narratives that have, uh, you know, been propagated forever and ever, and the kind of narratives that, that that legitimate and also necessitate violence on minorities. But when you do come across these facts as being served up by some sort of independent journalism, uh, is when it kind of opens your eyes to another reality. And uh, I think that sensitivity is, uh, for me, at the core of trying to advance the public understanding of religion. It's, it's interesting to um, hear Shirley talk, and, and I, uh, uh, like John said, um, some of these issues that we're talking about are global, or just are even just in the U.S. themselves, too. So um, hearing you talk about um, anti-Muslim views and how those are drummed up, um, you know, we, we've had that issue in, in the U.S. for many years now. Um, uh, we've had m many states and legislatures try to pass anti-Sharia law initiatives uh, against a problem that doesn't really exist. Um, we have a president who promised to ban Muslims from coming to the country because um, uh, he alluded to them being violent and terrorist uh, as a whole. Um, and the list goes on. Uh, so, you know, talking about audience and public, uh, who I think about when I write articles or when I take part in helping produce a video or a podcast or, or when I tweet or anything that I consider communicating as a journalist. Um, I think of, uh, you know, I think of people who are on Google and searching um, Muslim, period, in that example, uh, uh, or on social media kind of scrolling through Facebook or Twitter or whatever they may be using, Instagram, um, and how to uh, help them understand a little bit more about whatever, uh, in the case of Islam, religious community, uh, mosque, um, family, public figure that I'm writing about. Um, I, I always try to focus on individual people and places and not try to represent everyone at once. And I, I don't make it my goal to make people look good. Um, uh, or to uplift any religion over the other. 
um, or any identity, but I, I do try to help people um, understand a little better, better who other people are um, and to get out of their world a little bit because that's one privilege we have as journalists. We get to travel around or, or even locally or internationally, nationally, uh, go into spaces where others may not feel comfortable or feel welcome or maybe are not welcome sometimes, but we, because of that label where as journalists, we get to do that. Um, so that's, that's how I view who my public is and, and who I'm trying to reach. I'm just sort of playing off what you were just talking about, JD. Um, I, I feel like, so for a lot of people, um, our, our audience, uh, often their first encounter, especially with religious minorities, is through what they see or hear on television. And um, in that respect, uh, a lot of the stories that are coming, you know, especially in the broadcast world where I live, um, it, they tend to be more victim stories, more, or they're a terrorist if you're Muslim or happen to be sick, right? That's how they're painted. Um, where I think what, what's lacking or what I'd like to see more of are more of these humanizing stories of, you know, um, various religious minorities doing things in the community. Um, I think that that can be very powerful in terms of changing people's understanding and perception of various religious communities. Uh, and I, I, I mean, I just, I think the power of, of journalism is huge right now. I mean, things are changing so quickly and our democracy is hanging in the balance. And part of that is how religious communities are viewed and um, reported on, quite frankly. So um, I feel like it's a really important time to be doing really good journalism, even if you're just a general assignment reporter, to have some sort of understanding about who is living in your community, and as a religion scholar, for instance, even in a local news market, you have a, a place to help tell, help those reporters tell good stories about what's going on in the community. So I think in, in our work with the Pulitzer Center, it's, we're serving a variety of different audiences, and, and we're pretty conscious about how we go about that. I mean, our, our, our overarching goal is, is engagement, broad engagement with big global issues, not just religion, but certainly including uh, religion issues. And, and so we'll work with, uh, we, when we think about the proposal, people come to us for funding for projects, and we do about 170 or so projects every year. We're, we're currently, we're the main source of funding for enterprise uh, reporting project. Uh, for freelancers and staff members at, at a lot of different news outlets. And we do, you know, uh, uh, 40 or 30 or 40 projects every year with PBS NewsHour, as Liz mentioned, the one on China. So that's, that's and we know when we do something with NewsHour, we're going to reach a million people uh, who will mostly sit through the whole program. So if we do 10 minutes on, a, on China or whatever, Uyghurs, then, then we're pretty sure we're going to get that audience, and it's a pretty sophisticated audience. But we're also conscious that, 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 that we may be preaching to the choir. We may be sort of doing stories uh, about issues that, that that particular audience maybe is predisposed already to know something about it, to be engaged with it already. And so in, in our thinking about what our mission is to reach others uh, who may not be engaged, then we're looking for, you know, for opportunities to to work with other outlets. So uh, we've done a lot of work on, on issues about uh, the U.S.-Mexican border migrants coming in, 
human rights issues uh, on those stories. And so in the last few years, we've, we've commissioned more and more work with individual smaller news outlets from Tucson to Palm Desert in California to, to Austin and Texas and, and on and on, Seattle, and looking, trying to show how these stories connect to those local communities. And then in terms of, of, of audiences kind of writ large, then we, we, we also look at what can be translated into something that our education staff can work with the journalists to take into a middle school or to a high school or a community college or a, or a university or a graduate school. And we formed in, in, the, in the search for those kind of audiences, we've made some really effective partnerships with, with educators at, at all levels from, from K-12 through graduate work. And, and we've tried to be a, a facilitator uh, both of events, of, of opportunities to engage together, but also to transmit, uh, to, to introduce our, the journalists we support to our academic partners and vice versa so that the academic partners, it might be um, graduate programs in, in religion or public health or environment or whatever, uh, to get a better under understanding of what the challenges are for a journalist in telling these complicated stories, but for a journalist to have exposure to the best minds in, in all of these topics and with the goal of, of raising the standard, the quality of the reporting that's done uh, in all of our projects. And so we, we've, we've found that so far to be a really effective space to be in where it's, it's all about learning from each other and together uh, trying to become more effective at, at reaching the audiences that we all seek. Yeah, writing for a newspaper from a specific denomination, the question about public or audience is always a question for us because the general question is, are we writing only for Catholics? Or are we writing for a more wider audience? How do we pitch stories so that you know, we can provide the context that we have as specialists in the Catholic Church while also being accessible and not overly technical for non-Catholic readers or for readers of other denominations? Um, so we often have those discussions. We also sometimes write for religion journalists <laughs> because uh, it's, it's, a, it's something we can do to help explain a very arcane, sometimes weird system. Um, what's the difference between a, a nun and a sister? Why are why are those different terms? That type of thing. But primarily, you know, my newspaper were writing for a Catholic audience, and uh, something that John said about being careful about playing to the choir, preaching to the choir. For us, it's it's become very difficult because, uh, you know, we've lived in Rome for six years, so I don't know firsthand how. Uh, divisive or how separate into camps the general American public is, but the Catholic public is really bifurcated at the moment. Um, there are camps that don't speak to one another. Um, it gets very vile, very ugly. Uh, I know Twitter is not the best place for any subject, but Catholic Twitter is like a dumpster fire on top of another dumpster fire on top of another dumpster fire. I mean, I can tweet something that, you know, the Pope gave a child a hug, and the first 20 replies to that tweet will be just vicious things about this Pope, how he's trying to change the church, how he's 
heretical, um, that type of a thing. And there's these really difficult splits right now inside the Catholic Church, particularly in the U.S., that my newspaper were really struggling with. How do we address that? Who are we writing for? How do you build bridges in that kind of an atmosphere? Um, while also still wanting to expose um, kind of some of the malpractices of uh, conservative outlets who are really spreading some untruths about the Pope or about the church. Um, so it's been a very difficult discussion for us. Just a quick follow-up. As an institution and as a reporter, how do you, how do you think about navigating that kind of tension uh, in, in the particular public towards which you aim? It's difficult for me because I realize that I'm, I'm primarily writing for an audience that is in one side of the camps. So an audience that is more in favor of the papacy of Pope Francis, of kind of the change he's bringing or the, the, the hoped-for change. Um, for me, my Twitter use has really changed. Um, I used to be much more active replying to people, trying to engage in discussion. I really don't do that anymore. It's just become too difficult, and so I keep it quite factual. I still use Twitter as, a, as an information tool, uh, but it's not something where I'm engaging like I used to maybe three or four years ago. Same thing with Facebook or Instagram. Um, it's so difficult to maintain those conversations, to stay civil, um, to try to meet people or to assume good intentions, which is so difficult, and then to devote time to it. I mean, it can take your entire day just to do this back and forth, and that's very difficult. Just had one other aside to that. Um, it reminds me of, sort of in, in our world, sort of trying to, to, to do great projects and then take them out to the broader community. In the, I started the Pulitzer Center about 15 years ago, and for the first four or five years, sort of my dream that some, someday the New York Times will work with us on projects. And that was sort of, because I was, you know, I spent 30 years in print journalism, and that was the, the gold standard of journalism. And, and, and today, the Times, we do a lot of work with the New York Times. And so that, at one level, that's great. But what I, what's happened in the meantime, because of the types of division that Josh was talking about, is that for about half the people we're trying to reach in the United States and try to get them engaged in civil discourse, we are tainted just by association with the New York Times, even, even though the projects that we've done with the Times, I, I think, are, are of absolutely sterling quality. But there's so much distrust that goes all the way up to the New York Times and certainly CBS, the other networks, that, 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 that there is no accepted standard. Everybody is, is, is completely in one camp or another. And how we get beyond that is the, to me, the great challenge of our times. So shifting gears for a moment, um, I'd like to hear, you can either choose to do either or both of these things, but I'd love to hear from each of you what you think one of the most important stories, uh, religion-related news stories of the past year has been, and what you think uh, an important story that we should be tracking in the coming year uh, is. And you can take either or both of, of those things in any any order of panelists. I'm ready. I'll go. go for it. <laughs> um, all right. Uh, last year, I think. Well, I have. Can I? Can I give my top three? Sure. Um, I thought 
uh, Catholic sex abuse crisis, um, the Uyghur Muslim story, which was underreported, and um, the leavers, you know, the ex-evangelicals, the people who are leaving um, uh, white evangelical, uh, just the leavers in general, I think is a really compelling story, but I also think of last year, and not, you know, I'm not trying to pat myself on the back or anything, but... (laughs) Um, and then I think coming for the coming year, I think it's um, I think really important stories to watch are going to be also more levers, more stories about levers and um, the changing religious landscape. And um, I'd lo- I would actually just love to see more reporting in general about African Americans and their spirituality and um, their role in poli- and their role in, in uh, as a constituency for the political year. I'd be curious to think what you, hear what you guys think about my choices. <laughs> um, I, I think they're all really in, important stories. Um, on African Americans, that was one of the winners of this uh, yeah. year's award. Don Arul Hawkins wrote, uh, you know, and I think that's, if it's not out of place to say, one thing that compelled us, to, that she took a look at these uh, really, this huge community that um, doesn't always get, get its uh, religious practices really discussed in depth and she took interesting angles on it, too. Um, I, would ag- I would actually agree with you, Liz, uh, on, on the um, you know, undercovered stories of re- religious uh, persecution, um, Uyghurs being one example. Um, I, I always am in favor of more coverage. I know the Pulitzer Center is big on that kind of coverage, too. Um, you know, it's an election year, and uh, we have, I guess, a year left, right? Um, uh, so, uh, you know, I, we, I think you've all heard many times that the, the media in general didn't uh, really understand uh, voters and, and what they were going to vote for or why um, and sometimes where. Uh, um, in 2016, uh, obviously religion is a component in that, um, evangelicals being one group uh, especially, but there's other groups as well. So I, I, I think it's... Um, you know, there were a lot of lessons learned, um, and and one area that newsrooms I hope are trying to examine more is is the relationship between um, religious identity and practice and politics uh, as we you know choose who leads our country, um, and um, obviously that has a huge influence in the world too. So. I think all of those are really important stories that that need to be covered. And in my view, the the sort of biggest important issue globally that touches on religion goes back to what um, Shirley's project and and talking about the the, uh, Hindu nationalism in India. I think that is very much a global phenomenon. And, And whether you're looking at at the Chinese government and the Uyghurs, or the Burmese and the Rohingya Muslims, um, the what's happened with in Brazil with um, Bolsonaro's government going after indigenous people there, um, the Israel, the long history. I mean, the, the, the with against the Palestinians, and 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 now you know in the last few months seeing the the move to legalize all of the settlements in the in, in the West Bank. There are things that are happening around the world that 
would not have been acceptable or even in some circumstances, in some instances, even imaginable a few years ago. And of course, in this country, we, we, we also have a strong populist, nationalist um, movement aimed at, at marginalizing the other, whatever the other might, might be. And I, to me, this how we deal with the emergence of, of populist, nationalist, authoritarian governments that are consolidating power week by week uh, by marginalizing, harassing, or, or, or intimidating um, minority religious and, and, and cultural groups is, is a huge story. So I think I'm going to express a hope more than I know a fact about what might be the biggest story in the Catholic uh, journalists spear in the next year, but for me, it's the role of women in the church. Um, and my wife leads a nonprofit that works in this area, so I'm very biased. Uh, but effectively, women are unable to have any sort of decision-making role in the church, at least in a formal capacity, because they can't be priests, they can't be bishops. And this issue is bubbling. Um, in the big meeting in October on the Amazon, the bishops called for women's leadership. They called for a new structure of some sort that was very ambiguous. But they also addressed the fact that Pope Francis had created a commission to study the history of the ordination of Catholic women as deacons um, for more or less the first millennia of the Catholic Church. And so Pope uh, Francis, at the end of that meeting, kind of at a surprise, announced that he was going to reconvoke that commission. So we don't know what that's going to look like, Presumably, it could happen before the end of the year. Uh, we don't know what they might suggest or what not. Um, but the idea that the church might actually look at ordaining women to the diaconate, although it's not the priesthood, would be a massive shift, and it would put women in the Catholic clergy, at least in places where they wanted to be among the clergy. So to me, I think that could be a potentially an incredibly big story. So a final question from me before we open it up to the audience. Um, what can scholars of religion do to help support you in your work? I think uh, a couple of you had mentioned along the way uh, the role that it, uh, you know, in your own reporting, in having conversations with, with researchers and with, with scholars of religion, uh, with members of this guild. And I'd be curious uh, uh, just to hear your thoughts about um, both just practical tips for scholars and also um, what you think collaborative partnership looks like. I will go. <laughs> uh, I, um, the, the, the part, Evan, that the word collaborative really is the most important one to me. Um, uh, there's, um, and it, it can be, you know, simple things like uh, hearing um, some journalists speak uh, in this room along with uh, um, uh, others uh, in other professions as well. Uh, that's a, that's really important to just make connections. And you know, one issue with journalism uh, in the kind of world that I work in with big mass newspaper website um, is that uh, people don't always know that, that they can talk to us, they can email us, they can come find us. And, and it's our job to uh, engage with them and reply to them and ask them questions and be open to that. Um, uh, 
And you know, for scholars who are trying to you know, uh, also work in the public, I think probably that you face the same issue sometimes. Um, so I think it needs to work both ways uh, to, you know, um, you're, you're at a panel that I'm on, I wanna go to the one you're on at four o'clock. <laughs> um, uh, I wanna read your research papers and, and, and your books and see your, your films um, and take your classes even. Um, but I, 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 uh, I want you to come to our newsrooms, or my newsroom at least, um, and, and find me and talk to me. And you know, uh, oftentimes with criticism of things that I as a reporter get wrong sometimes, um, uh, it doesn't ever make it to me. It just makes it to the, you know, the Twitter sphere or the internet or comment section or in private conversations. Um, but I, I'm the first one to always check, you know, the comments of a website or my emails to see, did I get it right? Um, and oh crap, I didn't, I wanna fix it. Um, oh, this person's an expert in this area of, of religion. I should listen to them and talk to them some more. Um, so I, I'm open to uh, personally that kind of feedback and I, I think we probably all are. Uh, coming from this very lonely and difficult place that I think I work in, uh, I would say that uh, all the well-intentioned powers that be might want to try and align themselves to the idea of shared risk in storytelling. You know, very often as independent storytellers, we are the only ones taking emotional, financial, creative risks on projects. And uh, there are times when we found allies, when we have more people looking out for us. Um, and that has, that has led for our work to reach the world. And um, it is only when, when there are these alliances, when everybody sort of um, bands around this one story that they believe needs telling, uh, is when risk is shared among people, is when we recognize that there are hierarchies of power in the world and that uh, those who have more can do more. And uh, I'll give you a quick example of how, uh, when we were working on, uh, on this film around mob lynchings, uh, there was a huge concern amongst our commissioning editors uh, in the West about using the term lynching because there is such a history of um, lynchings in, uh, in the American South. And of course, we respect and regard it. Uh, but we were constantly cautioned against using the word lynching because it would trigger a certain uh, painful memory in America. And uh, what we were trying to argue as filmmakers was that if this primordial form of violence exists in India today, surely we need to call it by its name, especially when our governments are trying very hard to whitewash it and call it a case of accidental violence or you know, manhandling or an accident or some such thing. And, and it was a risk to even call that act of violence by its name. But there were people who allied with us and we were able to retain that name and uh, we wouldn't have been able to pull off that film if we did not have this, this group of people supporting us and saying that we could use the language. Sometimes you need to work to only let your audience understand violence by the kind of language that you're using. And even that constitutes as taking a risk on a project. And we did find partners like the Pulitzer Center who supported us on that journey. And I think that goes a long way to strengthen an independent voice. If you want to get to know a journalist, you have to be on Twitter, as irritating as Twitter is, because um, we're all on Twitter. And that's actually how I meet a lot of religion journalists. I mean, I can't tell you how many stories have started with a relationship with a religion scholar on Twitter. I know that's, you don't want to hear that. <laughs> 
Um, but you know, our job is all about relationships. And uh, the other thing is, if we do email you asking for a request of some sort, please just write us back as soon as possible. <laughs> you know, I'm interested. What's your timeline? You know, write back just to say rather than wait six months because journalists work on insane deadlines, right? So that, that's where we, we fill a different space. So, so we, don't, we don't do deadlines the same way with the Pulitzer Center. And, and the idea is that, that we're a, we give journalists an opportunity to, to get beyond the news of the day or the week, the, 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 you know, the press of constant deadlines, uh, to go to do something you know, more in-depth, more enterprising that takes time. And, and by the same token, I mean, I think the Twitter communication, Liz is absolutely right, that is where journalists are. But I think our conceit, at least, is there, there's a lot of value in kind of building relationships in person, doing collaborations together, doing events together. And so we're big believers in, in trying to, to, to collaborate with academic partners to bring in their expertise and their communities with our journalists. And, and so you know, we did a great conference with Yale several years ago in China on religion and environment. And, and, and we've done uh, you know, symposia at Washington University and, and Georgetown, uh, American University, one, one American University with, with Evan and some of his colleagues. And, and that, that takes more time to organize and, uh, and it takes more of a time commitment to be in the room together uh, but there are a lot of great relationships that that come out of that, and 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 you begin to get a sense of of common purpose, and and suddenly you start getting ideas about how you can collaborate. So, so you know we we built up this network now of 36 colleges and universities that are members of what we call our campus consortium, and and the the universities that put a bit of money into that. We bring, we use that to fund journalists to go on campus and do engagements with students on a wide range of issues, but we also use part of those funds to support student reporting fellowships, and we're up to, I think this year, I think we had 43 students reporting in 29 countries, uh, and we bring them all together in Washington for one weekend every year to present their work, and you've got uh, students from from Yale and Berkeley, but also uh, LaGuardia Community College and, and City Colleges of Chicago and, and Howard and, and Hampton Institute. And they learn so much from each other. And, and it's, again, it's the opportunity to bring people together and try to build uh, communities of shared purpose that, that we think is so important. I think the only thing I'd add in terms of how to work with journalists, how journalists and uh, religion academics can work together is, as best you can, be patient with us. Um, often we're reaching out on a subject that we're not experts in, and we might be very ignorant, we might get terminology wrong, we might get things really wrong on the first email or phone call, but as much as you can, try to help us understand why we're wrong and how to put it into words that a general population might be able to approach or understand, and really just patience uh, as much as possible. We know that you're busy as well, but whatever time you can give to help us understand something will help, we'll make sure that what we write is factual and is correct and gets the message across in a correct way. 
So before we open it up to audience conversation, I, I want to take moderator's privilege and say one little thing about the importance of the, the model of collaboration that we're articulating in, in these last few rounds of comment, which is that that necessarily means that it flows both ways, right? I think there's a sort of standard way that conversations between scholars and journalists work, which is that um, a scholar is doing their own thing and suddenly the phone rings or the, an email pops up and it, they've got like 30 seconds to respond and then like five minutes to say everything they know in a, in a lucid way. Um, but that's, that's just sort of one part of that relationship and I, I'd wanna underscore what some of those other parts might be. So on the AAR's website, there's a repository of all of the former uh, awardees of the Religion and Journalism Award uh, and uh, the actual packets of uh, uh, articles that were put forward by those awardees. So you can go back and read over that material. You should check those out and if you find them interesting, maybe use them in your teaching. Um, it, that, that circle of how information about religion is communicated to different publics, right? Not just the mass audience of subscribers to a particular uh, newspaper or magazine, but also um, how, those, uh, how students are the publics uh, that we uh, try to inform, how journalists might help us in reaching students who might not do the reading if we assign a 70-page, uh, you know, to, to uh, 30-page uh, scholarly peer review articles uh, to 18-year-olds who are not reading in that form, right? So what, what might we do as scholars to think about that as a, a set of reciprocal exchanges where then our students can uh, be better uh, attuned to how to appreciate religion journalism, how we might discuss in classes, how to, journalists can get it better, uh, and then communicate that back. There's lots of possibilities there for developing collaboration, and I just wanna, again, uh, say thank you to our panelists and to congratulate our awardees. Before um, any of you in the audience who have uh, comments or questions, to please come to the microphones, um, and we'll uh, take a moment to, to hear from you. And please uh, go ahead and introduce yourself. I'm Vernon Meyer from uh, Phoenix, Arizona, actually, so good to see somebody from ASU uh, here. Um, I spend time in the classroom really trying to give a positive, uh, a positive understanding and a positive view uh, of religion, uh, whether it be uh, Islam or Hinduism uh, or even uh, Christianity. And yet I know that my students are uh, caught up in, uh, in the media frenzy of often getting very negative uh, views of Christianity. I often think that today any of the media reports that you read on Christianity, why would I want to be a Christian based upon what those news stories often tell me about? Or thinking that uh, if I happen to be in favor of uh, Palestinians, that I get a very negative view of uh, Israel and the whole uh, argument that if I critique the state of Israel, I'm anti-Semitic. Um, I wonder if the stories could be more positive in terms of telling about cooperation amongst uh, Israeli Jews and Palestinian Muslims or uh, Hindus and Muslims and Christians in India. There must be groups of people that are doing things together so that I'm not just reading the negative conflict uh, that arises but the positive efforts of religious people uh, coming together. Uh, one of my good friends in Phoenix was a religion writer and I asked him that question, why do you always write about conflict? 
And he said, because it sells. I just wish there was more news media stories about positive cooperation amongst religious people that would support my effort in the classroom to give a positive view of religion. I take this question to be both about the challenges of uh, how to sell journalism and also uh, how to tell stories that uh, are more complicated than just conflict. Please. Yeah, I think I think it's it's not not just that it's um, it sells, but it's it's easier in some way to write the conflict story. It's it's you have to be much more confident of your material to to say this is a solution. This is this is something that is working. This is a positive thing that is happening. Because the thing that you describe as a positive development may blow up in your face tomorrow or the next day. And, and that's very embarrassing if you're a journalist, and journalists tend to shy away from that. I mean, there, there was a there was sort of one example of that phenomenon was, a, the, the, I forget his name, but the person who wrote the book called Three Cups of Tea that was a big bestseller on working with schools in Pakistan and, and India. And then it turned out to be basically fraudulent. They were raising money from you know, schools all over America, the, who, who, and, and he was packing auditoriums uh, talking about this work, and then it turned out that he was siphoning off a lot of the money for himself. And, and that, that's the kind of thing that's in the back of the mind of every journalist when they're sort of going to, trying to think about they'd like to write those kinds of stories, but it's daunting for that reason. There's a group called Solutions Journalism Network that, that we work with that uh, uh, Tina Rosenberg and colleagues at the New York Times started several years ago. And, their mission is very much that, and, and we've worked with them on workshops for newsrooms and, and trying to incorporate it within our reporting projects, helping journalists to learn the techniques for assessing and writing about you know, uh, positive uh, outcomes that can be replicated elsewhere. So I think it's very important to try to do it. I'm with you. I mean, uh, I would like to believe that there is goodness in this world, and I completely hate to be doomsday prophet. But I do think we need to adopt a more nuanced idea of what, of what a positive story or what is presented to us as a po positive story could actually mean. For example, if you look at coverage in India, there are a lot of stories about um, that look like these uh, sweet, beautiful stories about, let's say, Muslims celebrating Hindu festivals. And on the face of it, you would think that this is a positive story about how diverse we are as a country. But what it actually is doing is also that it is, it's almost like a form of dog whistle politics because it is asking for Muslims to be good Muslims. It is asking for them to align to the majoritarian idea of India as a Hindu country. So, so while yes, I'm with you, and I do think that we need to focus on the positives that come out of religion, and especially, let's say, a country like ours, where, where, where we have a deep social understanding of each other as belonging to different religions, but it's just that we need to then look closely at what is being presented to us as being a positive story. So thank, uh, my name is Teresia Hinga uh, from Santa Clara University, but originally from Kenya. I came to celebrate Joshua, uh, among others. Um, and thank you very much for very um, uh, insightful uh, presentations. 
I want to go back to the whole question of audience, the question of hope, and raise the question about young people and, uh, and children. You know, uh, Joshua spoke about the sex class abuse. What we forget is the end of that sentence, sex abuse of minors and children. So uh, 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 for the most part, we hear of young people and children as youth, but I mean uh, as victims. But we are also beginning to hear voices hopefully we, uh, of, of young people, not just pushing back, but also trying to say we could do uh, better as humanity. I'm thinking of people like uh, Greta, who's been uh, uh, pushing us to think out-of-the-box kinds of thoughts. And so um, regarding uh, climate change. So my question, how are we engaging or we could engage the voice of young people, not just as victims, but as people with agency and who could contribute uh, to the betterment of our country. In the, in, in the U.S., we have the young people that are protesting gun, gun violence. You know, it's a whole movement that came out of the mass shootings. Uh, and um, the second part is, how is globalization shaping the way we react to things, like the, 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 the rise of nationalism? in the form that is you know, pushing back, nation states trying to push back against the avalanche of uh, globalization and, and hurting minorities in the process. I think you bring up a really good point, if I understood, understood what you were talking about correctly, um, and that there is this, there is this um, lack of sort of coverage of, of, you know, young people in general and religious minorities in particular, right? The, are the, are the sick population, Jewish kids, uh, Muslim students, certainly. And, and to hear them, hear them struggle with what it's like to be a teenager in today's America, right? So I actually did a, just did a piece on this, and it was really well received, and I think that if we're going to be good journalists, we have to think about the totality of the country and, and making sure that all of these different, um, that, we're, that we're talking to everyone and not just, you know, millennials or, um, you know, gen, or, or no one talks to Gen X, so, um, or boomers, right? So, I mean, that's kind of the joke. But, um, but so I, I think to your point, yes, we need to be doing a better job of making sure that we're talking to all ages at this point, especially to hear those perspectives that aren't being heard and actually are making quite a significant, doing significant things in really tough circumstances. So I, to your point, yes, I agree completely and I hear you, yeah. So I think one of the most inspiring parts of our work is, is taking these stories that we support out into schools uh, because, and it's also one of the places that's, that, that gives us the most hope because the, the, a lot of the topics that we cover 
uh, tend to be on the grimmer side, and, and they're big, big systemic problems. But the eagerness of students to engage, and, and once they know something about it, to want to know more and to want to do something about it, uh, is very empowering for them, but also for us and for the journalists to go out and have the opportunity to, to, to get that kind of uh, feedback uh, from the students. And, and it also speaks to the polarization that we were talking about earlier and the divisiveness in the country as a whole. That's another reason why I think it's so important for us to be in middle schools and high schools uh, because that's one of the last places where, where you still got a reasonable chance of having a mix of viewpoints in the room and, and you can have a, a, a relatively civil discussion about it. Whereas if you try to do a community forum, you'll, you'll either, that's um, pegged toward adults, you'll either get everybody from one side or the other or you'll get people coming in to scream at each other. Um, and, and that's, it's difficult to kind of have the, the, the constructive civil discourse you'd like to have in that kind of environment, which, as I say, makes the schools really important. Uh, I agree uh, th uh, to get young people involved and get generally, you know, get voices that are not in the media or who are not, um, whose stories aren't being told, uh, told. Um, whether it's young or uh, any other unrepresented group. Uh, I'll, I'll just give you like uh, two areas in which we work uh, at LA Times um, that uh, perhaps you could go uh, read more about or maybe is happening in your community um, or others. Uh, uh, one, one thing we do, uh, and I, I participate in this, it's called High School Insider. So uh, we have um, 12 high schoolers and 11th and 12th grade every summer who uh, work in our newsroom and get paid, um, usually as their you know, uh, sometimes first job, uh, who want to learn about journalism and, and learn to write articles and shoot video, and they get paired up with a reporter like myself uh, who kind of answers their questions and uh, trains them in a way, and uh, they run their own websites, and then we help them write first-person articles from their own voice or traditional reported articles um, that uh, uh, we try to get in the newspaper and online on the LA Times website. And uh, in turn, these 12 students work with uh, hundreds and sometimes thousands in the LA area and other high schools, and they kind of pass down the knowledge and the connection to the newspaper. Um, there's also a, a project um, called uh, News Literacy Project, I believe, uh, that we also are part of, and I, I've worked with them before. Uh, where journalists go into classrooms um, in high schools and middle schools and uh, volunteer uh, during the day to talk to students about what the news is, where do you get your news from, um, how do you verify fact from fiction, is this link uh, that you saw on social media uh, or th that your friend sent you, is this real or is this, um, you know, uh, fake? Um, it, what is, is it, what is conservative media? What is liberal media? What is the between? Uh, and you know, um, and in turn, we learn from those uh, teens as well through those engagements about you know who they are, what their interests are, and what what we may not know about them and their culture. So I I I, I say that say it's really important. I wish there was more of that, a lot more of that. 
We can, we can just throw out one other thing I forgot. That, that, that one initiative we've had recently that we've been really excited about in this regard we're reaching out to schools is the 1619 project, which is the, the New York Times, a special issue of the Times magazine in August on kind of reframing slavery, the impact of slavery in American history and, and life today. And that got a lot of attention when it came out. The Times asked us to be the education partner on that project, and so we wrote curriculum for the uh, online curriculum that's free, freely available for different levels of high school, middle school, high school, colleges. And then the Times said that we, we could have access to as many copies of the magazine, physical copies, as we got schools to agree to, to use the curriculum in teaching um, that project. And so, so far in the first two and a half months, we've had 5,000 uh, teachers that have, have used the curriculum. We've shipped the copies out in individual classrooms. And then the entire, every high school in, in Chicago and Washington and Buffalo and Winston-Salem, North Carolina, uh, they all they committed it at the district level to engage all of their students with this curriculum, so there is this you know this willingness to take on you know you know big controversial topics and and I think there's a huge opportunity which this uh, sixteen nineteen in the New York Times is a great example of sort of just thinking creatively about how do you put something out that captures the imagination of people and 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 fosters uh, community engagement, and I think there's, we can do that on lots of other topics as well. I wanted to, to thank you for your question and to r remind us that there was another part around globalization and this question of nationalisms, and I, I wanted to pick up on that and return to some of the, the comments um, er, from earlier in, in the panel. Um, I think Joshua may have had one more thing. Oh, you want to jump in? Please, I'm sorry. Yeah, it was something small. It's more internal. I was thinking about the idea of the high school insider. Um, and I think a struggle that some of us at smaller outlets have, smaller newspapers have, is in the budget crunch with funding problems, you know, we're not able to hire people. And so often in my newsroom, we have older reporters who are very skilled, but it's very difficult. You know, we don't have anyone younger. So there, there's no one in the newsroom. I'm probably the youngest person in the newsroom, and I'm not that young. Um, and so you're not you're not learning about what's happening, and you don't have people who are receptive to that. One gift that we've had is we have an internship program funded by someone, a, a generous donor. But I know other outlets don't have that possibility. And so when you talk about looking at young people with agency, if you don't have young people on staff, if you haven't been able to hire a younger person in some time, I think that colors your your ability to do that. Sorry to have interrupted. Uh, so this piece around the, the global uh, story of the rise of populist nationalisms and, and the relationship of religion to that. So um, my own work is around the intersection of religion and climate change. And one of the things that uh, many of my colleagues and I are starting to notice is the way in which climate change, migration, and xenophobia are related, and that this has this religious characteristic, right? So as people are being displaced and moving, um, that's causing frictions between the movement of peoples and border regions around the world, right? So this is one way of thinking about what's happening at the southern border of the United States, but it's 
very much not an American story, right? This is a global story. So my question has two parts, and I think bits and pieces of this have come up. So one part of this is, how do we write, I have a colleague, Peter Mandeville, who calls this right-sizing religion, right? How do we think about uh, large, complicated, multidimensional stories that have a religious aspect to them that's not the only thing, right? So how do we um, not isolate journalism as religion reporting, but uh, proactively and smartly and deftly include religion as an aspect in broader stories? That's the first part. And then the second part is, uh, these are stories about populist nationalisms. They're necessarily national news stories, but we have a global problem that's clearly <coughs> linked. How do we tell stories and how can we um, grapple with something that's both at the same time, very local and very global? The, the local global tension, right? That these are both necessarily national news stories, but um, also are happening everywhere. So we can't tell them in isolation from one another. I wonder if it's okay if I... I um possibly hand over the mic to Shirley. I, I just thought of you because your, your, your work is about what's happening in India, but uh, we were talking earlier where you're, you've been traveling around the world to share about your work and, and, and kind of, I'm I was guessing, making those connections, or, or if that's okay. Yeah, of course. Uh, it's... Uh, going to sound a little bit philosophical, but uh, but I do think that, uh, our, and I'm really only speaking for myself because I'm the only filmmaker on the panel, I suppose. I'm not sure if you make films, any of you. But um, the only way for filmmakers, at least, I think, is, um, ha or at least has been for me, is to find uh, ways of telling stories through metaphors. And uh, I think there is... Uh, there, is a, there are particular ideas that audiences enter the film with. And uh, our world as it stands now is already divided into these very specifically formed binaries. Before we've seen somebody on screen, we already know the values that they stand for. We've already imagined people to be a particular way. And so I think a lot of the work of storytelling, and that is where the complexity of storytelling comes in, is to destabilize some of the ideas that an audience enters your piece or your film or whatever it is that you're creating as a vehicle of your storytelling. Um, and for me, I've always found the answer only through metaphor. And uh, for me, it, it is only metaphor that speaks the universal language. Um, I mean, I've made two films around, uh, loosely around the ideas of nationalism and uh, both of them have uh, found a certain resonance all around the world only because they, um, they express their ideas through, uh, through a visual and emotional language that approaches the metaphorical form. I think it is, uh, it is something that helps me take the story beyond the world of fact that locates and roots it in a particular uh, geography of India, let's say. Um, 
And these are films that, one of the films has been about um, the search for a river that is uh, mythical. And um, the government, the Indian government declared that we have found this river. And, um, and because they found this river, they, are, they will be able to prove that India is actually the oldest civilization in the world. And if you really look at it, the narrative is coming from an absolutely nationalistic place. And in fact, they do use um, Donald Trump's uh, Make America Great Again all over our film because these people are claiming that having found this river, they can make India great again. And through the narrative of this river that actually does not exist, but the search for it is founded on um, something that Trump inspires in these people, uh, we were able to transcend the particular local nature of that story into finding a resonance for a hopefully global audience. Um, so I think that's where, um, I'm not saying that the answers for me lie there, but at the very least, the direction in which the answers might lie for me come from that place. Do we have any more questions from the audience? Well, uh, with that, uh, I would want to take a moment to, uh, again, extend our, our appreciation to the panelists, but in particular, the awardees. Uh, nice work, Joshua. Thank you. Thank you.